Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Okay, welcome back to Sunday School. Uh, We're in the last two weeks of this class. Uh, It's been a lot of fun uh, doing this Doctrines of Grace series. And I'm I'm really excited to talk about Perseverance of the Saints this morning. Um, Mostly because I've probably this is one that we we can relate with the most and just an ongoing um, desire to know Christ more but also struggling with sin doubts things like that Um, but also I feel like there's just so much hope uh, in regards to just this message and this doctrine Um, so I just want to start off praying and then uh, we'll hop into the content this morning Lord God we uh, we come to you this morning just so thankful that you love your people. Uh, God, so thankful uh, for Christ. God, that he is the good shepherd. God, that he uh, knows every one of his sheep by name. God, and he uh, will not let them go astray. God, so I just pray, um, God, as we read your word this morning, God, that those promises would ring true to us as believers. Uh, God, if there's anyone here who uh, yet does not, does not yet know you, God, that you would save them, bring them to yourself. Um, God, just pray for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just a quick recap of of what we're doing, where we're going. Uh, This is the fifth uh, and final uh, point of Calvinism. So we started off with total depravity, and that's the T in tulip. And our whole idea behind total depravity was this idea of inability, or um, do we have the ability on our own to... Uh, choose Christ. And we uh, came to the conclusion as a result of Scripture that outside of God's grace, we do not have the ability to choose Him. That's total depravity, that every part of our being is corrupted with sin. The following week, we talked about unconditional election. As a result of our total depravity, our inability, we needed God to intervene. We needed God to step in and bring us to Himself. That is unconditional election, that God chose us. Following, we talked about limited atonement, that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of all of the people who would trust in him. And then two weeks ago, um, Blake talked about irresistible grace, which is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the uh, capacity, that we don't have the capacity to resist his grace. Um, and then Phil Johnson rudely interrupted my class last week. Uh, I sent him an email. Uh, saying to come after my class next time. Just kidding, I didn't do that. I don't have his email. Uh, but if I did, I still wouldn't email him. So, uh, Just kidding. I, w- I really wouldn't. Uh, so this morning we're going to talk about perseverance of the saints. And here's what perseverance of the saints is commonly known as. It's once saved, always saved, right? That's the, the common way to phrase this. If, if I become a Christian, can I lose my salvation? How many of you would say you grew up in a church that taught once saved, always saved. Right. So, so did, did any of you grow up in a church where explicitly was taught you could lose your salvation? You could. So it's probably about half and half, right? And then, you know, one third, one third, and the last third just didn't raise their hand for anything, which would be me. Didn't grow up in the church. Uh, and it's an important, and this is an important question, um, and let me, let me illustrate it like this. I remember going to my first Orlando project 
I became a Christian in March of my freshman year of college, decided to go to the OP, and there was me and three of my best friends from IEPUI who went down to the summer project. What the Orlando project is, is uh, it's a summer training program put on by Campus Outreach uh, for students to grow in their faith, learn how to study their Bible, share their faith, uh, all of the things that I needed as a new Christian to learn to establish in my life. So I go down to the OP with some of my closest friends, and it was one of the most foundational summers of my life. So for the first time, I'm with other young believers, studying the Bible, praying. I'd never experienced anything like that. And we just grew in such tight-knit fellowship together. And we just had dreams. You know what I mean? I'm a dreamer. We're going to go back to IEPY. We're going to change the world. Just, you know, we, we, we saw 30,000 people. We're like, we're going to impact our campus. We, we're all about it. Praying about it for 10 weeks. Get back to IEPY. It's me, a couple other guys. And within a few weeks, one of those guys decided, I'm not going to walk with God anymore. I would, I would much rather, uh, I would rather have my sin than have a relationship with my Savior. And, you know, I'm five months into being a Christian. I'm just like, my whole world is, you know, what is going on? You know, I, I'd seen all of these, uh, you know, aspects of fruit that I thought we were praying together, we are sharing our faith together, we are sharing our Bibles together. And almost in an instant, it was sin over Savior. And that, and probably many of us can think of a time where that's happened to a friend of ours, family member of ours, or someone that we can see from afar. And the question is, is was that fruit ever genuine? Was that profession of faith ever genuine? Um, and we, we see this illustrated in scripture as well. How many of you are familiar with Demas in the New Testament? Raise your, raise your hand if you are. There's about 20 words dedicated to Demas in three verses in the New Testament. I'm just going to read them to you and kind of walk you through the timeline. Uh, Philemon 1.24, Paul says, And so do Mark, Aristocurus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Important verse. Colossians 4.14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So what's Paul saying is he's got these these men who are doing ministry with him. And one of them is named Demas. And then in 2 Timothy, which we know is one of Paul's last letters, he says, For Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So we see Demas with Paul. We see Demas with Paul. And we see Demas leaving Paul. Why? Because he was in love with the present world. And I think so many of us, probably just those words can resonate with us, right? Uh, maybe that was one of you, or, or maybe that was me. To, to some degree, uh, maybe we've left what we thought was a genuine profession for sin before uh, we trusted in Christ, or maybe this is someone that you know, that for years of their life had a profession of faith, and then out of a love for the world or a love for their sin, they turned their back on Christ. So why does that matter? Well, it matters for a few reasons. Uh, the first is on, on a personal level, it's heartbreaking, right? If you've, if you've ever been in that situation, uh, it's just, it's gut-wrenching uh, to see someone turn their back on Christ, right? Because uh, Jackie Hill Perry, I don't know if you guys know who that is, she's uh, an artist, and she, she writes this song about someone that she had uh, 
you know, been in fellowship with as a believer, and the song is all about, all about the illustration of this is who you said you were before you turned your back on Christ, and, and you can just resonate with her words when she's like, you taught me this, you told me this, and then eventually I saw you walk away. On, on a personal level, it's heartbreaking, but even on a theological level, it brings up many questions that we need to answer. The first is just, can we lose our salvation? Right? That's, that's an important question to ask. Do we have uh, this salvation status that in an instance can be taken away from us? That, that's a question to ask. Why? Because why? Uh, do we need to live in fear that if we commit some sort of sin or if we uh, say something, think something, that we could lose that salvation? Right? This would, in some sense, be a Catholic view if you think about mortal sins versus venial sins. So they, the, the Catholic belief would be that you, after your baptism, receive righteousness. And that righteousness is something that coexists with your works and also God's grace. But if you commit a mortal sin, you lose that righteousness. And the only way that you can get it back is through penance, acts, acts of penance. You go to confession priest gives you this penance that you must do, whether it's praying Hail Marys or some sort of restoration, do you believe that's true for your own life? That if you were to do something, think something, even as a genuine Christian, you could lose your salvation? That's the first question. The second question is this, is can you have any assurance or confidence in your salvation? So as you live your day, are you living in fear that, or the opposite, are you living in confidence uh, that Christ has redeemed you, that he's bought you, that he saved you, that he's adopted you, and you can live your life in confidence knowing that he will protect you? But even the reality is that if this is untrue, then the rest of the doctrines of grace, unconditional election, total depravity, irresistible grace, they go out with it. All of these coexist together. Uh, if God is, is not preserving us, then he can't elect us. Uh, if God is not preserving us, then there is no total bravity in which he has to come in and rescue us. So, anyway, I think that's a, that's a good preface to say this really does matter. And if, and if you haven't experienced any of those situations before, or if you haven't had any of those doubts before, you will. Uh, just like I do, um, and like I've seen. So, let's start off. Uh, we're going to spend, thankfully, a, a lot of time in God's Word because I think what's so beautiful uh, about perseverance of the saints is we see this so clearly illustrated throughout Scripture. So a couple of key words that I think will be helpful. Uh, again, I think R.C. Sproul does a, a great job of redefining this doctrine and says uh, perseverance of the saints can be some, in some ways misleading because what do you think of when you think of Perseverance. Yeah, yeah, I was reading Nate Van Cleve's Facebook post about how he won a 5K the other day. Uh, give it up for Nate, the 5K winner here. That, that, is, that is Faith Bible's best male athlete right there. Uh, yeah, we, we are a church full of rock star athletes. Uh, but if you think about a 5K or any sort of running, um, don't do it because it's not fun. <laughs> It's never been fun. Uh, no one actually likes running. It's, that's a myth. But when you think about running, 
in its essence, running is you go outside, and the minute you start, if you're anything like me, maybe there's people that are different than this, but the whole time you're like, why am I doing this? <laughs> this, this is, I'm tired, I don't really want to keep going. And sure, you feel great when you finish, don't get me wrong, but the whole time, you're just like, one more minute, one more mile, one more step, am I going to make it? I don't know. Uh, and what perseverance is in the midst of running is it's continuing the course of action. I'm committed to run from here to there, and nothing is going to stop me from getting there. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to sweat. I might have a heart attack. I don't know, but I'm going to keep going. So if you think about, you know, if we were to say, phrase this doctrine as perseverance of the saints, and you were to not have any idea of Reformed theology, you could think, okay, I just got to make it. I just got to think of it like a race. We see, the ra- we see races in the Bible. So therefore, I just got to run. And hopefully I make it to the end. If I did, I persevered. It's kind of misleading. Because what we really see is this idea of preservation of the saints. And, and the difference is preservation is, is a clearly God-centered term, right? It's, it's God preserving us in our existing state. So you become a Christian, God is going to preserve the saints. And even in some sense, I think perseverance coexists with preservation because God is calling us to be holy, but how are we being preserved? Simply by his grace, by his power. So we're going to look at a few passages this morning of this idea of preservation, but even I think uh, I'd, I'd like to see some scripture that also opens our eyes to see there is a reality that people will fall away. And then the question is, um, was this person ever a believer? Was this person a believer and lost their salvation, or was this person never a believer? So let's start with Matthew 13, parable of the sower. We'll spend a lot of time there, so flip there, and we'll spend quite a bit of time in Romans 8. If you have those two dog-eared, the rest of it I can just read. Anyway, okay, Matthew 13. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. Okay, so imagine this picture. Jesus is talking about a guy who has a handful of seeds, and he's going to plant it, and he tosses it out. And what we're going to look at in the passage is when the sower, farmer, person, grabs the seeds, he throws them. We're going to watch and see where each of these seeds land. So the first is the seeds fell along the path. The birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So instead of me uh, trying to decipher what that means, we'll just see what Jesus said in verse 24. When he, uh, nope, that's not right. In verse 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. 
this is what was sown along the path. So here's what Jesus is saying, is our hearts are the soils. And the seed is God's word, right? So the way that we're seeing this passage interpreted is our heart is one of those four soils. And we're going to see how our heart responds to God's word. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another sixty and another thirty. Seventy-five percent of the soils, what happens? It bears no fruit. It bears unfruitful. I'm not sure that's an accident that, that Jesus says 75% of the examples I'm going to give you will eventually not bear fruit. And if you've been a Christian and been around people for longer than probably a month, you can think of examples of each of these soils play out, right? Uh, I mean, even Demas, you, th- you think about Demas that we'd read about, clearly falls into that third soil. The cares of the world choked him out. The second soil, you, you know, you've probably... Th- Think of someone that you've seen who they've made a profession and for the first month, everything is amazing, right? It's, uh, they're at church every Sunday, they're baptized at small group, singing songs, the whole world is going amazing and then something happens. You know, fill, fill in the blank, but a doubt creeps in, something challenging happens and we see uh, the two foundations that Jesus illustrates. When the wind blows, the house proved uh, to be not on the solid rock. So I think this is challenging for us, but what I think it should illustrate, first of all, is that there's, there's a sense that people can make a profession of faith and yet never know who Christ is. And Jesus says this in Matthew 15, 8, the people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So it's very possible to honor Jesus with your lips, to say something that has truth in it, to say something good and true, but their heart is far from Christ. John says in 1 John 2.19 that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So Paul, or John's talking about a group of people claiming to be believers. He's saying these people walked away, uh, and they never were. Uh, they never were believers. So the, the point of, of going through that passage was to illustrate one thing very clearly, um, that there will be countless uh, people that you interact with that will make professions of faith that, that there's a chance that they never knew Christ, never knew, uh, never knew him personally. Matthew 7, Matthew 15, 1 John all illustrate that really clearly. And I, and I think although Scripture illustrates it clearly, it doesn't mean uh, it's not heartbreaking. Does that make sense? So even though we can accept this as truth, know that people will profess faith, turn their back on Christ. If you've ever been in that situation, you would know that's very challenging. It's very hard. 
um, so many ways you feel like you've lost a friend, right? Um, think of many examples of that for me. Uh, but there's lots of hope as well. And, and hopefully what I want to illustrate in Perseverance of the Saints is although there is the gut-wrenching side of this where you see people turn their backs on Christ, so much of this should be assuring for us as believers uh, in the one who's protecting us and preserving us. So go to Romans 8. Uh, we'll read 11 verses out of here. And I just want to give four promises um, from this passage and then three additional promises that I think can give us confidence that God is preserving us in our faith. And always feel free to stop me and ask questions or I'm going to think I'm doing a really good job. So please ask questions. Could be either, you know. I'll speculate, but I'll be optimistic. Win-win. Eric? Absolutely. I have a great illustration for that at the end that I'm really excited about that I don't want to share right now. Uh, so hold off to my illustration that I somewhat took from someone else and then made it my own, to preface. Um, Romans 8. And we know, Romans eight twenty eight. and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Without me explaining that passage, I hope that's a reassuring passage of God preserving us as believers. Uh, very clearly that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. Um, but just in case, so I want to reinforce that, and I just want to give four um, promises that we see in that passage that should, again, uh, assure us that God is preserving those that he's justified. The first is God's plan. Famous Drake song, if you're familiar. Uh, but God's plan, the, the order of salvation. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And this is actually, if you took one of these newcomers class pamphlets, the order of salvation is in the back. There's a lot of helpful things in this pamphlet that we can talk about. But primarily the order of salvation, that's Paul works through in Romans 8, um, where he says, 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Uh, for those who he predestined, he also called. For those he called, he justified. For those he justified, he also glorified. We talked about this a few weeks ago. But think about the amazing promise here. That he promises that those who he called will be glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? When the whole man is perfected as the body and the soul. Right. So the whole man is perfected. And when, are, when is that going to happen? Is that going to happen tomorrow? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> In eternity, right? When we see Jesus face to face, uh, we will be glorified. So think about the promise here. That if he calls you, if he justifies you, if you make a genuine profession of faith because God has intervened for you and saved you, he promises that you will be, in the future, glorified. It's a promise. Apostle Paul tells us, Colossians 3.3, 3, that, uh, that we will be with him in glory. An eternal weight of glory is waiting. This is our perfected state. God's plan is for those who he calls, he will also glorify. It's God's plan. Secondly, God's power. If, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is the king of the universe, and he says that he is for us, what is going to be able to intervene in God's power? He says, I am for you. I've saved you. I've bought you. I'm holding you. Can anyone outpower God and pull you away? Can Satan? No. Can your sin? No. God's power is reassuring to us that if he's for us, he can't be against us. We see the evidence of this with God saying just a few verses later that he sacrificed his own son. Is he just going to give you up? This is the idea of limited atonement, that Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for all those who would trust in him. When he calls you, saves you, sets you apart. Third, God's justice. What charge can someone bring against you? So if God has paid the penalty for your sin, and you're, and you're wrestling with something, thinking, man, if I, if I really was a Christian, I, I, I wouldn't be thinking this way, or I, I wouldn't have done that, or I wouldn't have said that to my wife or to my husband. And you begin to have doubts creep in to say, man, my sin, my sin is greater than Christ's blood, or this can't be true for me. And the promise here is so true that there's no one, no lie that can come in and say, no, Christ has bought you. He's paid the penalty for your sin. He saved you. And Christ's death on the cross is much greater than any sin you'll ever commit. And then finally, God's love. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ Jesus? If we read this list of powers, creation, height, or depth. Uh, we talk about the sword, persecution, famine, distress. Probably a few of those things will come up in your life, right? There will be distress, and for some of you, persecution, and for some of you, famine, for some of you, danger, maybe. But none of those things can separate you from Christ's love. If he has chosen you, if he's bought you, he loves you. He has power, he has a plan, and he's just. But more than that, he loves you. And no one can intervene out of that love. So three promises that I think are probably the most compelling for uh, this doctrine. The first is adoption. That we see in Galatians 4, 1 through 7. I 
I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, and God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but an heir, and as an heir, son through Christ. Think about adoption for a second. Adoption, even for us in, in 21st century America, is an incredibly powerful thing, right? It's in, in many ways, someone who's orphaned or someone who's alone, and it's someone intervening, saying, I am going to take you as my own child. You know, you might have other children, you might have no children, but say, everything I have under my house, my bank account, my cars, everything, something happens to me, is yours. You're my heir. Everything that I have belongs to you. Not only my things, but my name, Right? powerful. Adoption is an amazing thing. It's beautiful. And even we see so clear in scripture that God adopts his children. And think about this. There's no original kinship here for us. We were born separated from God. We weren't born in relationship with him. He came in and intervened and adopted us as believers. We were children of wrath through Christ adopted as sons and daughters of God, why would we assume that God would go out of his way, bring you into his fold as an heir, and then a few years later, because you did this or said that or thought this, he's kicked out for good. He's no longer my child. He's no longer my son, no longer my daughter. It's not the promise of adoption. Promises of, do- of adoption is what we see so clearly in the prodigal son, right? Is that the father's the one sprinting down to the child, and warming him with a coat, giving him a ring, kissing him, and saying, my son, I love you. Welcome home. Adoption is such a clear picture of this, but not only that, bringing to completion, Philippians 1.6, it's the second point. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What God starts, he finishes. What God starts, he finishes. So if you think about your life and you just think about sanctification and even uh, in your own life as a believer, probably for some of you, you'd be like, this has been an absolute roller coaster. Uh, There have been times since I've trusted in Christ where I've been on the mountaintop and everything has seemed so clear. I see who God is. I see who I am. I'm worshiping him. I feel like I'm uh, pursuing holiness. And then there are moments where you feel like, and what am, I, what am I doing? You know, you feel like you haven't read your Bible in months, or you feel like you haven't been turning from sin, and then it seems like just a few weeks later, something with the Spirit uh, brings you back. I don't know if you've had that happen. I've had that happen a lot of times, uh, where there have been months where I feel like I'm really struggling in my faith, and I come back, and what do we, we call that? Sanctification. Uh, we call that God's preservation. But what we see clearly is the promise that God gives us here, that when he begins a good work in you, he's going to see it through. And that should be a promise that we should cling to in the midst of 
anxiety, depression, struggling uh, that is going to happen is that God's promises are true. That when he started a good work in you in the midst of your problems and your mess that exist, he's going to see it through. And then thirdly, Christ's protection. John 10, 26 through 30. Another incredibly clear illustration uh, of God's preservation of his people, God's protection for his people. Uh, Christ the shepherd will not allow us as believers to be taken from him. He says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What are a few promises in that passage that you can cling to and say, this is an evidence of God's protection or God's preservation of us as believers? Yeah, we hear his voice. That's amazing, right? Um, what do you think are some ways that we hear God's voice? It's a good question. Right? Yep. Through God's word, it's the most evident. Through his creation. Through his creation, yeah, right? Beautifully seen in Romans 1 that we see evidence of who God is of the world around us. What else? Yes. Yep, through prayer. Yeah, even God just answering our prayers, right? Mm-hmm. What else? Yeah. Body of yeah, yeah, through God's people, right? Through encouragement, through people pointing you back to God's word, through reconciliation, right? Uh, Seeing restored relationships, we see evidences of grace. Yeah. What are some other examples in this passage? Yeah. He says, I give them eternal life, right? doesn't say, I offered it to you, and I'm really glad you took it. He says, I gave it, I gave it to them. Uh, just like uh, anything that's given to us, it's not, he's, oh, I gave it to you, not, I think I'm going to take it back. I'm going to take it back a, a few years later in the midst of your struggles. No, it's, that's illogical. What Christ has given to us, it, he's not going to take away eternal life. And we know that because of what's to follow. Yeah. Right, yeah. We'll follow him because we trust him. I am the father of one. Mm. Why, why, do you, why do you see that as a promise? That's a good one. Well, because you make point to put it in here. Yeah, that's true. You're right. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we see the, we see the, the triune God in uh, perseverance of the saints, right? It's God who adopted us. It's Christ who's our shepherd who's preserving us. But even in Ephesians 1, we said the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation. Yeah, it's a really good point. 
What else? Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. If, if, they, if What he's saying is if Christ and God weren't one, I mean, it would eliminate the power that we see in Romans 8, right? Yeah. What else? Yeah. Great point, Rick. Yeah. If he took it away, we couldn't trust him for anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's showing us that God is the one choosing us. Sorry, I, I can't. There's no way I'll ever be able to see Blake when I'm up here. Just my peripherals don't work like that. Anyway. Oh, uh, never mind. Any, but if you can go. Mm. You think of the passage of First Corinthians that the word of the cross is foolishness to the unbelieving world. But what is it to us? Why are we even here? It's that to us, it's the wisdom of God, it's the power of God. It's like the reason we love it is the promise that you know if you are His, you're going to love this message and want to follow it, as opposed to the Pharisees who openly reject it. So it's a promise of just seeing that you know if I have fallen in love with this gospel, if I have truly trusted and repented of my sins. That yeah, and, and that really is one of the, the most clear promises. And Jesus says this out of his, his own hand and the Father's hand, that no one is able to take them. No one is able to take them. Is that a promise that you believe? It's amazing. Very clearly written here, black and white terms. No one is able to snatch you out of my hand or the Father's hand. So let me conclude uh, with an illustration. And, and if there's any questions, great. And if not, we can end on time for once. Um, so, Cora and I have a rule. Okay, a very simple rule. I don't think this is unique to my to parenting. Uh, but the rule is, is when we get out of the car, or we're walking out of the door, say, Cora, where are we? She goes, parking lot. What does that mean? Hold Dada's hand, right? Good parenting, I think. Um, and every time, we grab hands and we walk towards our destination. And sometimes, when we're walking towards our destination, Cora falls down and she scrapes her knees and she cries. But what is going on the entire time when she's on the ground? Still holding her. We're still going to the destination. Still picking her up. And I think the beauty of this the point of the illustration is, is Cora could try to let go. But Cora is not the one who's in control walking to the car or walking to the door. 
she might think she is, right, sometimes. Like, she thinks she's the one holding on to Dada's hand because that's, you know, what I tell her, hold on to Dada's hand. But I'm the one who's in control walking to the car. She could try with all her might to bolt for the door, to bolt for the car, but I'm not letting go. And sometimes what that leads to is she falls down and she gets hurt and she's sad. But Dada's never letting go. And the promise is true for us in our relationship with God that there are going to be times where we disobey and we try to go to the car on our own or we try to go to the door on our own and we fall down and we scrape our knees and there's pain and it hurts. But at the end of the day, God's hand is never letting go. You're never going to get hit. You're never going to be taken because God is the one who's holding tightly onto your hand. Let me pray. I'll take any questions. We can close. Lord God, um, God, just so thankful, God, that you are the one who has the power. God, you are the one who is just. God, you are the one who has a plan. God, you are the one who loves us. There's countless times in my life where I think, can remember where I did not love you, God, or I did not trust you, or God, I did not believe your promises. And God, just so thankful, God, for the promises in John 10, God, that no one can snatch believers from your hand. God, and I just pray for us as your people, God, that even this morning, God, as we sing and uh, take communion and listen to God's word and fellowship with one another, God, just pray that those promises would be true. God, that those would be promises that we would not only hold on dearly to ourselves, but that we would be quick to encourage one another, God, of those promises. God, and even in the midst of situations like Demas, God, I pray that we would hold fast to truth and to God's word, and God, that we would be believers who would be trying to to bring people into the fold of God. God, help us to do that. Would you please use us? God, would you please help us to trust you? Love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.